This is Spoiler Country Presents, a commentary track. Where creators give you behind the scene information on the comics you love. Alright, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenner and that is Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's all about Dead End Kids, issue three, commentary track, episode three with Frank Gogol. This isn't commentary track episode three. This is commentary track episode three with Frank Gogol. Oh, there's, yeah, three with Gogol. Okay. It said with Frank Gogol. Well, then I missed that, and I'm the idiot now, so let's move on and pretend that didn't happen. Yeah, third time he's coming on the show talking about uh, his co-doing his country track, giving us the page-by-page play of, of the insights into the book, talking with Casey. It's so cool that it, he come on and says I'm with Casey and does this, because learning the behind-the-scenes stuff is so cool, and it's just, I, I don't know, I, I feel like I'm just saying so cool over and over again, because I'm really a big fan of this series. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, and this one is extra long, so we're going to cut it into two parts. So you're going to yeah, hear yeah, part one today, and we might just release both episodes on the same day, or it might be, or we're going to do part one today and part two tomorrow. So just keep that in mind when you're reading through this one and, and listening to this one. It is going to be a second part. Yeah. And the, the the speed in which they get posted would depend on how fast I can edit them. So we'll just have that. It's, it's all on me, whether it's today or tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's sit back, listen to Casey and Frank talk Dead End Kids, issue three. Perfect time to pull out your copy and follow along. All right, welcome again to another episode of Spoiler Country. My name is Casey Allen, and today... I'm talking to Frank Gogol about uh, issue three of his Dead End Kids comic, um, and this this is the final issue, Frank. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know what? Reading it over on my own now, I I feel like I wanted to, to spend a lot more time with these kids, but this is this is just where the story ends, I guess. I mean, for now, <laughs> have you have have you thought about going back? Uh, yeah. Well, so the, you know, it's, I don't know if it's any secret or if I'm humble bragging, but the, the series has been sort of a breakout. Um, so there have been some conversations about like what a, a second one would look like, whether we would sort of see where we land with the kids, uh, after the story's over, maybe there's room for another one, or maybe we'd do it sort of like a true detective where, you know, it's still called dead end kids, but it's sort of a different youthful crime story each time kind of, you know, get our Marshall Ali in there kind of, um, but, uh, nothing's concrete yet. Um, and, uh, we're thinking about it. Comics are a flat circle. <laughs> I mean, may- maybe that's records, but comics too. Well, I mean, if you me, ask Grant Morrison, they are. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, y- you could fucking meditate into John Lennon or something. And re- I mean, that's what he does, right? I, I think so, or he's abducted by aliens and did yeah. too many <laughs> I mean, whatever it did, it, he's it's working. He's, he's yeah, doing really yeah. comics, so <laughs> give me some of that. I, I just I want some of that Alan Moore snake god vibe, dude. That's, that's <sighs> all I want. Alan, I, I Alan, he's a mixed bag for me. I think if I just let the beard go and believe in myself, I can do it. 
God, if I could grow a beard. It's a fucking beard, dude. Maybe. <laughs> oh, but, uh, yeah, so we are thinking and actively speaking about what a sequel or follow-up would look like, but nothing nice. is set in stone yet. Um, I've got at least two books that would be created and put out before that, so we got some time. Yeah, yeah, and, and you need to keep Sean, and, and you need to keep Nanad, because... Yeah. And Chris Mads covers have been nothing short of amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, I already know sort of like what the concept for the second one would be, even with whether it's with these kids or a new set of kids. And I've already got the covers planned out. And Chris is a hundred percent on board. He's I I don't want to ruin anything, but we would definitely follow the same template and you know strong primary or secondary color for each cover. It's it's it will very much feel like it's set in the universe of Dead End Kids, one way or another. Nice, nice. So, um, speaking of dead end kids, let's jump in, man. Yeah, jump right. in with so both feet. One, one last ride, as Vin Diesel would say. <laughs> I, oh, short, Allegedly. quick. I, I've I've seen one of those films, and I, I live tweeted it because nobody fucking follows my account anyway. But <laughs> it was the most ridiculous shit I've ever seen in my life. You must have seen one of the later ones, six, oh, seven, yeah. eight. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, uh, man, there, Ludacris was in it, and there, there were, uh, yeah. So, I've got some feelings about the Fast and the Furious franchise, and and honestly, it's it's so <sighs> cleverly done. Like the movies are definitely like a certain <laughs> type of movie. They straddle that line between like anything else James Wan has done and like Michael Bay. Um, but if you start from the beginning and watch, like they progressively get weirder and, and more like insane in terms of scope. The first movie is just about, I mean, the first movie is essentially point break with cars instead of surfboards. It's a cop infiltrating a gang. So, so Uh, one time I I got really, really sick and I took some really strong cough syrup and, and I took too much of it and I spent like half a day where I had no fucking idea what was going on. That was that uh, Fast and the Furious movie. I should have uh, <laughs> started at the beginning. Impenetrable if you haven't <laughs> seen the ones that come before. I mean, there's like a character's dead, and then the next movie they come back with amnesia, which is an insanely stupid plot point. <laughs> it's like a soap opera. Well, it's exactly it's, it's, it's I mean, it's it's like the other soap opera for dudes. Like you've got it, WWE, and then you've got Fast and the Furious. It's a soap opera for people that that drink. Uh, monster energy Nos. or something. <laughs> yeah, Nos, exactly. Um, I will say that I like the first one a lot. I like the second one a little bit less, but still quite a bit. And then the fifth one, the one in Brazil where they steal the bank ball at the end, is I think one of the better heist movies made in the last 20 years. Um, really? Every other they're they're all okay on some level. I don't think I the last one I watched was the the last one with Paul Walker, so number seven, I guess. Um, and I have absolutely zero interest in Hobbs and Shaw because. That's that's jumping the shark. Like it's just <laughs> that I, I do gotta say that the the race in I think it was like five or something or six the race in Cuba at the beginning of the film, um, where he finished the race backwards in the car on fire. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, that was uh, that was pretty fun. <laughs> listen, that's one. That's a way to keep the flames out of your face. If you're going, you know, just, listen, we could talk about this all day. But we're here to talk about K 
killing children. Exactly, exactly. I'm sorry about that digression there. No, that's all right. You know, I, I had to get it off my chest too. <laughs> I think Vin Diesel would like Dead End Kids. Honestly, I'm surprised he hasn't called me to try to adapt it into Fast and Furious Nine. But it's a, it's a, it would be a prequel. Who who would Vin Diesel play? Um, Bulmer. But. The bully. He, he, <laughs> he'd ha- he'd have to get a wig or something. Um, he, I could see him rocking a backwards baseball cap. I mean, I not that I think he's anything like Fred Durst, but they both sort of sit chronologically in the same place in my mind at the very early 2000s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Fast yeah. Furious One came out in 2001, I believe, or 2000, and that's like right around the time Roland came out. That fantastic album by Limp Bizkit. So, I mean, yeah, they're both relics. And Diesel is sort of just somehow lasted longer. I digress. Okay, so so we're at... We're, we're on the cover. Yeah, let's start with the cover. Um, so, following um, the trend of the covers, um, like I said in a couple... Both interviews probably at this point. Um, I'm a sucker for well-templatized um, covers, you know, something like you'd see for East of West or Black Science, um, things that are sort of well-graphic designed and and pretty striking and have strong sort of color contrasts. Um, so this cover just you know follows the lead of one and two. We've got a strong primary color in the blue. Um, we've got the, the graphic design elements of the logo and the white band and the issue number sort of in the same spot um this is the kind of cover that attracts my eye when i walk into the comic shop and i guess it seems to be working on other people um in terms of the art uh chris has delivered us another sort of interesting striking image um essentially this issue is it's kind of it's kind of the balls to the wall issue um like sort of anything goes no one's safe um, and not everyone makes it out alive and not everyone makes it out unscathed physically and emotionally. Um, and I really, when Chris and I were talking about what this cover would look like, we, we sort of came up with this idea. Well, yeah, one of these kids is probably not going to make it out in some form. So how do we sort of sell that to the reader with the image? And I just said, why don't we just have them all falling through the ice? You know, it's it plays into the themes. It, it sort of puts everybody on the same level in terms of danger. Um, and I think it's a pretty cool image. Like we didn't have, you know, sort of as dynamic of a covers for the first two. The other two are pretty static. You've got the kids leaning up against the dead end sign on the first one. And then you got the kids laying in the street in the second one. This one is sort of active. There's there's stuff going on around them. The little bubbles sort of, you know, add a little bit of uh momentum to the page for lack of a better word dynamicism um um i I just really like i think it's a really balanced cover um i love that amanda's sort of front and center and the other two are sort of taking a back seat i feel like she's for me the breakout character and really the one that i identify with most so i like to see her getting some love because you know at this point i'm as much a reader and fan as anyone else like i stopped creating this book about a year ago and ever since i've only been able to look at the finished product so yeah it's 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 a sort of surreal feeling but um as far as the covers go yeah i think this one sort of hits all the the same boxes the other ones did um and in its own way yeah yeah it's it's really really well done uh again i I can't say enough about how awesome chris matt is so he again he knocks it out of the park with this and uh, it kind of picks up the the um nirvana theme from a little bit, yeah. From, yeah, from I, earlier. I 
Yeah, yeah, and but I mean, they're all sort of reaching for that dollar, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they're all equally in peril. So, uh, you know, I'm just—I don't think I spent enough time looking at this cover because I'm noticing like lots of little things right now. Like, I didn't—I never noticed before that Tank is pulling Murphy down with him. Yeah, I noticed move, that. <laughs> but, but, but uh, um, he's I also panicking, never noticed. So. Yeah, no, it's fine. And I also never noticed Amanda's hat sort of floating down behind her. Yes, yes. This this is good. This is why I like doing these, because now I get to notice all the things that I missed. (laughs) I'm so focused on getting the fucking book done. Um, While we're on the topic of Chris, um, this is sort of a very timely comment, but uh, Chris and I will both be at New York Comic Con for anyone who is a Dead End Kids fan or who is going to be at the show and wants to be a Dead End Kids fan. Um, So if you got your copies, uh, he and I will both be there to to sign them and talk about the book and hang out and shoot the shit. Um, If you want to come up and tell us how bad the book is, uh, I can get you Chris's booth number. (laughs) Um, So yeah, but uh, yeah. For those of you who hear this before New York Comic Con, swing by. And, and remind me um, later when you know, right before the sh- the show, and I'll uh, repost where you're at so people can can actually find you. Yeah, it'd um, be nice if I knew. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as I know, you'll be the third now. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So, so yeah, but that's the cover. I'm swinging inside. The The credits page is essentially the same credits page we've been looking at for the last two issues, but with um, the background swapped out to be the background from the, the cover, like the first and second issue. This is just a thing that for me was important. I wanted this book to feel like a full package from front to back. Um, and then we've sort of the same element follows through onto the back cover. And it's, it's something that I don't know that people consciously appreciate, but I think that when they hold a book that's got that sort of visual and, and, and packaging through line, like it just feels like a more complete product. And I think I said that last time, but uh, yeah, this is just, you know, that continuing forward. Nice. And so uh, we, we haven't really talked about it at all. I don't think um, over the last two episodes, but what was your relationship with your editor? Uh, So, the editing credit on this is actually an interesting accreditation. So Paul is a mentor of mine. Um, for those of you who don't know, Paul is Paul Aller is uh, he's a comic book writer. Uh, he's written a lot of Ninja Turtles at IDW. He's written a little bit for Marvel. Um, he's doing Samurai Jack at IDW right now. He's about to launch uh, a new GI Joe ongoing at IDW. He's published with Comics Experience, Source Point Press. Um, so after he's a real show. layabout. Yeah, I mean, he's. <laughs> it's it's kind of wild that he doesn't have like a, an even bigger status than he has as as a creator because he's sort of been all over the place creating this really great content. But Paul is one of uh, the people I consider a mentor, um, specifically Dead End Kids. Uh, the the, the scripts and the story itself were developed in a class I took with Paul um, at Comics Experience, which is where I learned how to write. And um, yeah, so um, but uh, so for editing, I would say like I wanted to credit Paul somehow, and you know, producer is kind of a dumb word that isn't really used for comics. Um, so we landed on editor. Uh, his role was really story editing and sort of advice, more so than like actual production editing and like. You know, 
redlining the scripts or anything like that. Editing yeah. is such like a broad term. It can mean a lot of things in, in regard to this book. Paul really helped me work through breaking the story and weeding out the cliche scenes and, you know, making sure the dialogue sang a little bit better than it did. Um, and honestly, Paul throughout the, the whole process of marketing this book and getting into people's hands is probably the person who's flown under the radar the most. Um, Partly because he's just a very humble and, and, and not braggy type of person. Um, I think he's tweeted one time that he's been involved with this book. Um, but also just because I, I feel like editors always sort of get the shaft when it comes to credit for the book. And they, just for everyone listening, editors really are the heart and soul of the book. They're the ones who see it through from like concept to, to, to press to get into the shops. Like, I mean, like it, there's such an essential non-negotiable part of making comics and they almost never ever get talked about so just next time you open a book any book as long as it's not like an alan moore book because i don't think he uses editors anymore uh, <laughs> but anytime you open a book just just take a look at the credits and see who worked on the thing like you might notice the same name a couple times and then have a new way to find books you like you know following editors is a way to find a type of content too the same as following an artist or a writer and they have to care about the story just as much as the writer and for the artist. And yeah, because they're picking yeah. through it like crazy and trying to weed out the bullshit. Sure. And you know what? They're the ones who take the, the wrath when the book isn't good. Like writers and artists get the credit when a book is good, but the editor gets like all of the wrath of the, the fandom when a book is bad usually. Um, so it's just, it's nice to take a moment to just appreciate them because dead and kids wouldn't exist without them. GI Joe Avengers, Spider-Man, all of those books have editors. Um, so yeah, like I said, it's take, take a moment. Nice. So, so that said, <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's move on to the first page. Um, so yeah, I wanted to open this. So Let's let's reverse real quick. When we last left the book on page twenty of issue two, the kids were sort of like at rock bottom, right? The the Bulmer got shot, he's dead, the killer got away again, the the clubhouse is burned down, and as Murphy's looking around taking in like the, the, the chaos around him, he sees that Amanda's been shot too. Um what I wanted to do on this first page is like throw the reader a curveball, stop all that momentum, change gears, and like keep it a little bit interesting. So we flash forward 20 years to 2019, and we've got an adult Murphy standing at a grave, presumably Amanda's, possibly Ben's, who knows? Um, but, uh, and we start with uh, a, a narration almost similar to the narration the book opened. Um, with it's sort of this, it's a, it's a catch up narration tells you what's been going on and it sort of primes you for this. You know, this isn't the kind of story you think it's kind of going to be vibe. Um, and we see Murphy say, I'm sorry at this grave. And then on the next page, we flash back 20 years and get no more context. Um, so when, when we hit the first panel of page two, we don't know if that was Amanda's grave. We don't know if that was his parents' grave. We don't know if that was Ben's grave. We, we don't really know what's going on, but we have a lot more questions than we did a page ago. Um, so on page two, we flash back to 1999, wh where the sort of primary part of the narrative is taking place. Um, and we've got Murphy and Ben walking down the street, and there's sort of uh, there's some tension there. 
Murphy is trying to talk to, to Tank, and Tank's not really having any of it. Um, and then we see them sort of walk into this yard, climb up a tree, start to open a window. Um, and before we start talking about the next page, is there, is there anything you wanted to focus on or, or talk about on these first two pages? No, I'm, I, I'm just really struck. I love, throughout the whole book, I've, I've really enjoyed the color palette. Hmm. And um, I, I don't know that that gets enough shout out. Uh, I'm, uh, Nana does the colors on this as well, right? Yeah, no, and, and it's, I think we talked about this. Oh, my dog came in. Hey, Waffle. Um, but uh, we talked about this, I think, on the first one. Uh, the, the whole team really had a, a long conversation sort of funneled through me back and forth about what the aesthetic of this book was going to look like. I had a, a very specific sort of art style in mind and a very specific lettering style in mind. We talked about Russ Wooten on the first issue, and that was who um, letters primarily for uh, guys like Rick Remender, and he does like this sort of flat – desaturated no borders on his uh his balloons kind of look and it really to me feels like it's part of the art rather than on top of it which sort of makes you notice it less and and draws your attention away from the book a little bit more um or less rather um so this this the color palette is really the third thing right we had the 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 art style the line style and we had this idea for these this balloon and narration style and we to make that borderless balloon and narration box style work we really needed a more desaturated palette with like sort of more gray tones in it um like it wouldn't really work on something very vibrant um like a, like a scotty young book it wouldn't work the same way yeah um, so that's where the the color palette came from um and that gave us like that sort of incredible look that the night scenes have like the with the very purpley gray um we wouldn't have got that without all that other stuff. It's just really pleasing to the eye. Just the it's clean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I'm very particular about like the comics that I think are aesthetically pleasing. Like I read a lot of comics and I don't mind other styles, but there are some styles that really stick. Like like Deadly Class is a book that I think looks good visually as well as being a good story. And it's not like the art; it's like the whole. Everything, the, the package, the, the logo, the, the cover styles, the way the letters are done, the color palettes are very flat and saturated. I mean, like, that's a book that was thought about at every level from top to bottom and, and turned into, like, the perfect storm of elements. And not to say that Dead and Kids is that, but that's what we wanted to try and get to or as close to as possible. And, and the... The book, there, there's not one page of this book that, that strays from that aesthetic that you have. So it's, it's really, really well done. Nice. Um, I'll, I'll let the guys know you said that. Yeah, you, you, they they killed it. So uh, Yeah, they, they make me look good. Like I'm getting most of the attention on this because I've been the face of the book promoting it. Um, but I did the least amount of work to make this is the thing it is. Slacker. Yeah, no. I really like that body language in uh, in panel five, the, panel the five. final panel on the page. Page two. Yeah, pay, yeah, yeah. When when he crawls into the window. Uh, and he's got his hands up. Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, you know, it's um. So one of one of the things that doesn't also get talked about a lot when when people talk about creating comics is page turns. Um, every 
right-facing page, the last panel should sort of beg some question of the reader to sort of propel them to, to turn the page, right? Most people, if you've paid for a comic, will turn the page anyway. But, you know, if it's the first issue of a book, you really want to have a lot of momentum. And, like, that's just something that's really ingrained in, in the way I tell stories. This is, I believe, a left-facing page, but it's just sort of my sort of standard approach to a page to always have some kind of page turn to propel the people who are reading the book to the next page. Um, I think that this, this was a fun one. This was a hard page to write, actually, like sort of getting the beats right and, and landing on that, that moment. Cause again, on the last page you had questions about what the fuck's going on, who, whose grave is Murphy at on yeah. this one you're at the end of the page and you're like, Oh shit, what is, what's got Murphy all fucking spooked as he's climbing through this window. Um, and yeah, now it's, it's Nanad is one of the, the sort of criticisms he's gotten across this and, and grief. The other book we did together, um, is that sometimes his characters can look a little stiff, which I don't know any artists who, who hit the nail hundred percent of the time. But what I will say is when he, does like an emotional beat or like a really important moment. Like the characters always look organic as hell. Like, I mean like really just, you know, when you write a panel description, it's really hard to describe in words what you're trying to get down on the page. Like, like trying to tell the artist to, you know, this person's like really sad and like their world's falling down around them and they, they're hunched over and their hands are in their heads. Like, how do you say that in like one or two sentences and in a clear way? And, and not for nothing, Nanad's first language is not English. So like, I mean, there, there are extra barriers in the way of this and he really, really understood. Yeah. He's taking on like a champ. Now, now quick, quick aside. Did you have a window friend? Because Uh, I uh, I had a girlfriend that I would. (laughs) So all, all of, the kids I grew up with who these characters are, are mostly based on, we all lived on first floors. We had two-story houses, I think, every one of us, but all of us had first-floor bedrooms. Um, I don't know what that architectural style is because I, I know that that's not usually the case with bedrooms. They're usually on the second floor of a home. Um, but uh, And the one exception to that was my, my best friend and cousin Tom who lived on the second floor of his building, but he also lived in an apartment, so – you couldn't get up to the second floor uh, without like going past somebody else's window. So like we, we never had that, like go up the ladder, climb up a tree, go on somebody's window thing. But I just, you know, I, I ape this from Clarissa. Clarissa explains it all. Like, I mean, <laughs> this is that creepy kid who's always climbing through her window, which in 2019 context is not cool. Oh no. See, I, I dated a girl and she lived in the basement, but there was no door access to the basement. However, there was a window access to the basement, and so we would go in through that. And her it was like a fire hazard. Yeah, yeah. And her her okay. So her dad was an ex professional wrestler, and he was a mountain of a man. He scared the shit out of me. But uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> page three. <laughs> I just wanted to know if you had uh, window friends from experience because it, it, it made me think of, of my own uh, teenage years. That's sort of what I was hoping people would do when they read this book. So I'm going to chalk that up to a win. <laughs> all right. So we're at the bottom of page two. Murphy's crawling through a window and he's scared shitless all of a sudden. We get on to page three and we find out that Amanda is still alive. 
and she's got a fucking gun because she's scared of who might be crawling through her window. Well, I'm sure so, that would traumatize the shit out of her. Well, after yeah, what she's happened been in the last, yeah. She's been shot. Obviously, she's survived the ordeal. Her mom's a Y2K doomsdayer, so there are weapons in the house. Um, actually, if you look very closely on the third page of issue one, uh, where we first meet Amanda and you know you meet her mom, the gun is in the background of one of the shots. And that was something that I like was very strong about, sort of threading in there very innocuously. Innocuously. Um just because it's like the yeah, the whole Chekhov's gun thing. Like if we just added a gun to this issue, it might yeah. come out. Of, yeah, uh, and that maybe people wouldn't have even cared. But and like, I remembered that from that first issue because it it, it stood out and it, it was a good character cue though for the mom because you yeah. kind of saw like, oh she's she's off the deep end about this Y two K shit. Well, so. you know. One of the things I really strove to do, and I don't know how successful I was, but I think I was at least a little bit successful, is let the sort of visuals and the things that happen in the book that don't seem important really end up playing a more important role later. And this gun is one of the examples of like one of those visual payoffs. Um, there's another one in this issue a little bit later, and we'll get to that. But, uh, you know, it's 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 good to see that the plotting and the planning is is paying off and that it – is mattering um, because you know when you're creating stories, like it doesn't matter how long they are, like you, you spend so much more time planning them and creating them than people spend with them. I mean, you can read this whole series in a sitting. It took me and Nane, Ad, and Sean the better part of a year to, to put it all together, and like right up until the yeah you know, the eleventh hour, we we're tweaking things, and even now, like I'm sort of revising my opinion about things, and it's just. When when it's it's a little bit gratifying to see that the hard work does pay off, um, and then for all the shit you guys aren't noticing, god damn it, look harder. We put so much. <laughs> I'm kidding. I mean, I like please. how <laughs> I like how adept uh, Ninad is is to drawing different body types. Yeah, well that okay. that was another thing we really talked about. Um, like. A lot. One of my big criticisms, especially of superhero comics, is sort of everybody kind of looks the same unless they look like drastically different. Like all the X Men are essentially the same body type, with the exception of Beast and Wolverine. Yeah. Wolverine, short little dude who's kind of wide and tough, and Beast is a furry ape person, cat person. Um, but you know, Scott and Havoc and Nightcrawler maybe is a little more wiry, Gambit, but they're all essentially like. You know, six foot two, six foot three, you know. Thin, fit people for the most yeah. part. Yeah. And th- these are kids, like, in puberty. So Tank is he, – he, he's the big kid who's got a growth spurt and he also comes from sort of a bigger stock of family. So it made sense for him to be bigger. Ben and, and Murphy are – they're sort of like, you know, the the scouts and the havocs of, of the dead-end kids. Well, they're sort of the average, not overweight, not thin kids. They're just teenage kids. And Amanda's just, you know, she's she's a girl. We didn't over-sexualize her. Um, most of her clothes cover pretty much all of her body. Like, But you can tell she's, you know, she's she's a 13, 14-year-old kid. And, you know, I don't know. It's, it's something that I am hyper aware of when I create characters because it's just – I don't know. It's it's important to, to show things as, as they really are in, in ways that matter sometimes. Um and this, if you go back and look at this book, it's full of different shaped, different aged people. Um, it's just, it was 
and honestly, it was something that we could have took steps further even. Um, but there's only so much space in, in six issues, so or three issues, rather. Hang on real quick. I'm going to shut the window. <laughs> maybe we want to go back and uh, maybe ask me a question again. <laughs> so <laughs> find a good spot to cut that sorry i live in a city oh no 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 it's all good it's all good um we we were just talking about the different body types and how um uh how amanda wasn't overly sexualized and how important it is for you to um to to show things as they are rather than the uh maybe stylized yeah perfected yeah, form just, listen like, like i was saying we could definitely have taken it further and done more to even be more representative of what the world looks like um it just wasn't something that happened organically as i was creating the story it's, it's it's very much a product of where i grew up and 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 the people i grew up around how i imagined these characters and you know uh grief is a book that was really full of diversity in a lot of ways and and I don't know. I just, it wasn't something that was at the forefront of this book as much as maybe it should have. Um, but like I said, these, these are the people I grew up with. So I kids from the suburbs. Yeah. I mean, this was honestly like, if I could be a little bit selfish, this was a little bit for me and like, uh, catering to, to, to an experience that I had growing up. Yeah. as, As selfish as that can be. But aside from that, like we really did go to great pains to make sure that like, there was a diversity of body type and age of the parents and, and, and little things like that, that probably will, will go mostly unnoticed by most people. But I think one of the, the greatest compliments this book has gotten is the authenticity of it. And, you know, I think that it's those little things sort of cumulatively that, that lend to that authenticity without people really realizing all the different sources of it. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people reading this have had the experience of, being a kid and suddenly realizing that you're in something where you are over your head. Yeah, absolutely. It, it scares the shit out of you. So, well, and that's, that's the problem with this book and, and with the in general. It doesn't scare me enough, and that's why it keeps getting worse. But back to the page. So Murphy and, and Tank climb through the window, and Amanda's there. Amanda is alive and well. Um, uh, one of the things that I was worried about sort of structuring the story this way was sort of time jump heading two weeks into the future and not really addressing the immediate aftermath of Amanda getting shot. And and honestly, like, it just wasn't something I was super interested in, in, in writing about. Like, I could have wrote, you know, a five or six or seven or ten page, you know, sequence about the kids trying to figure out how to get to the hospital and, and how to, you know, how, how the, the – ER people had to take care of her and the cops questioning them and and you know it's as easy as I could just explain that the reader can imagine it it's yeah. not a possible it's just it's just it's not interesting we've seen it a million times and by skipping over it it gave us that sort of anxiety factor at the beginning when Murphy's standing at a grave and he's saying I'm sorry I, I'm sorry I couldn't protect you um and, and, you know, it's just, it's, it was, it's a structural choice. It was a stylistic choice. You know, some people are going to hate it and that's, that's going to, that's life. You know, not, I'm sorry that the book didn't 
play out exactly as you thought it should. And and for those of you who love it, like I, I'm glad you appreciate the sort of chance we took um, structuring it this way. Now, uh, it Amanda has an offhanded comment in this scene where she says, "Yeah, you know, I'm fine, by the way." Uh, in my little head cannon about the book, which is the official head cannon because I wrote the book, the bullet just grazed her. You know, it just it, it, it broke the plane, broke the plane of her clothes, took a little skin with it, and and you know she, she got off very easy. Um, and it was just a good cliffhanger, and that's that's really all there is to it. But uh, what I really wanted to dig into in this scene is the kids are fractured, right? They've been separated from Amanda for two weeks. Tank and Murphy have this incredible sense of tension between them tank is pissed at murphy murphy doesn't think he's done anything wrong and doesn't really understand why tank's upset um and and this this scene here this sequence in the beginning of the book is really about them putting that shit behind themselves and one of the things that i absolutely adored about being a child and looking back on being a kid was just how easy it was to squash the fucking beef like like my fiance like has blood oath death you know <laughs> fucking um you know grievances with people that she ha- used to know like you know they're dead to her and like there's no way they'll ever fix it and i just don't understand that like when i was a kid me and my uh my my best friend harry is flying out for the my wedding this weekend coming up or next weekend rather um and i remember when we were kids like we got in a fucking fist fight i broke his nose like he he beat me black and blue i broke his nose we had like scratch marks or i mean we beat the shit out of each other and and the next day i saw him on the street and it was, we just looked at each other and we were good like it's just that easy <laughs> to pass this stuff and like that was what's up i i think that's almost the difference of growing up as a guy and and not to not to say that you know being a dude's better than no. I think part of that is toxic well, masculinity true. coming out. <laughs> like women are are by by pop culture trained that like everything should be a blood feud and dudes are you know you, you get you get the aggression out of your system and you're all it's like a volcano kind of thing. Yeah, and yeah. like I, mean, I, I yeah. don't mean to play into that thing, but it literally <laughs> just my experience growing up, whether it was it was a guy thing or not, it's just when me and my friends fought, like it. There just wasn't time for that bullshit. Like we got over it so quick, and like that was what I wanted to pump into the scene. And essentially, between this page and the next page, or actually, it's just this page, is Amanda saying, "Are you guys fucking kidding me with this bullshit? I got shot, and you guys are gonna fucking be all <laughs> butt hurt." And she's like, "Squash that shit. You're gonna you're embarrassing Ben and his memory." And you know, that's what they needed to hear to to be like, "It's all good." You know, they shake hands. They 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 use the little phrase that I gave them. It's what we do. Um, and then Amanda's like, all right, let's fucking, let's find this killer. And like, then the story moves on. And like, that was for me representing what I was just talking about. Like you just, we just squashed it. You know, you, you broke a kid's nose. You fucking blacked your eye. You squash it the next day. Like, you know, that wasn't always the case, but more times than not. And, and yeah, there, one of the things I really wanted to tackle with this book was this idea that childhood is not this simpler golden age time that that we all remember it to be but for me this scene was me also saying but it wasn't all not that way right? like there were things about it that were simpler um, and less complicated and this is one of those things for me 
And that, yeah. And Amanda was totally um, justified in calling them on their bullshit. Absolutely. And, I, and, I, I kind of chuckled when I read that. I was <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I've always wanted to write a parenthetical line of dialogue, like just this thing that's sort of set off to the side and it's in dialogues. And, you know, it's, that's, you know, I'm fine, by the way. Comment, like, just it tickled me when I wrote it. And I just, <laughs> I think three people told me to take it out. And I was like, nope, staying forever. Um, but on a, like a more character driven level, this is, this is the, the character of Amanda playing into the character of Amanda. We talked last time about how, what happened with her mom and, and, her dad really forced Amanda to step up and, and switch roles with her mom and be the caretaker. And Amanda is, without even realizing she's probably doing it, being the caretaker. She's being the mother. How many times do you remember your mom telling you and your brother or you and your friend like to, to knock that shit off? Like all the time. Oh yeah. Right? So I mean, that's just that's exactly what she's doing here. I remember one time when I was a kid. I don't fucking know. I have no idea why, but Harry, the, the guy I just mentioned, was standing on our bathroom toilet. I, I couldn't tell you why. And I remember I, my mom came in and she said, you better get the fuck off that toilet, boy. <laughs> and, and, and this was back when, like, pe- people's parents might, like, smack somebody else's kid a little bit. I, I'm not saying my mom ever hit anybody, but, like, in the 90s, like, people were a little more loose with that. Um, so, like, when somebody's mom said, get off the toilet, you got the fuck off that toilet. <laughs> So, on to the next page. Um, now that the kids have squashed their beef, they have to start start running their, their suspect list. Like, they're, they're back at square one, right? They thought it was Bulmer. Bulmer's dead. So, they're, they're sort of, as, as kids will, um, sort of running through the logic. Like, who's left? What could their motives be? I mean, like, this is pretty procedural in its own juvenile way. Um, and the, but the conversation is really between Amanda and Tank. Um, Murphy's sort of off to the side, and he's sort of he's listening, but he's he's sort of racking his own brain on 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 his time, and and sort of little things that Amanda and Tank are saying to one another are sort of acting kind of as breadcrumbs for him throughout the the top tier of panels. Um, and then when we get to the bottom. Murphy has this epiphany. Like they, they sort of, without even meaning to, sort of lead him to this realization, and he knows who killed Ben. Um, and that, if I'm, if I'm keeping my pages right, that would have been the uh, the left page on that. Um, and then we get the title page on the right. Um, you know, standard packaging from the the rest of the series. You got a, a title page and and the chapter name, and then this one is the only one that's not named after sort of a young adult novel. Um, but this one is End of the Road, which is you know, it's a very obvious play. It's the end of the story. They're about to, to go into sort of the end game, so to speak. But the the lake or pond where Ben died is also at the end of the dead end streets. At the and, end of the- also, more importantly, named after the Boys to Men song of the same name. Yeah, it was definitely. <laughs> I feel like there are many end of the road story names and and songs and and other things. I bet there's a Limp Bizkit one. Oh, Lord. <laughs> now, yeah. I just want to hear Fred Durst cover the end of the road by Boys to Men because that you know song what? slapped. You know, to, to to the man's credit, for all the the heinousness he put into this world by existing, um, his cover of Behind Blue Eyes is, is one of the better covers. 
was I was driving down the road the other day and that was on and I was kind of singing along. I was like, "Fuck me, God right. damn it!" Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's it's like one of when an earworm song comes on, like by a band that you don't even like, and and then but you like no, like like when when Bye 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 and Sync comes on the radio, like no, nobody doesn't know the words to that song. You know, you're probably even doing the dance while you drive. It can't be helped. It's just the way it is. I think behind blue eyes can be like all the credit can can go to like Roger Daltrey and, and the boys from who so hundred and ten percent. But as far as like covers that make it to radio, that it, I don't know, it works. And, and yeah, when you, when it breaks down into like almost a hardcore song at the end, like I can really get on board. Like that's that's more my musical space. I just don't like when biscuit. So let, let's let's dive back in. Uh, let's yeah. get back on that road. We are back at the lake. Yeah. So we we, we flash forward after the title page. It's you know later, um, and the kids the kids are waiting. You know Murphy's got a plan. We we as readers don't really know what the plan is. The kids have sort of started to execute the plan. Now we see them wait for it to sort of spring off. Um, and they're waiting and they're waiting. And this was sort of this was a sort of fun page to write because um, if you think back to the first issue, uh, there's uh, the scene. It's like page five or six or seven uh, where the kids are sort of planning and executing Ben's surprise party before Ben shows up and they leave tank to watch guard. And there's a tier of three panels. It's sort of the same shot each time, but it's it's sort of or that tank watching guard and he's. You know, we see him in the first panel, he's awake. In the second panel, he's nodding off. And in the third panel, he's wide awake because he hears something. And this is not the same thing, but it's another one of those sort of weight and sort of comedic. I mean, you see them sort of go through the motions. In the first uh, pan- in the third panel, you know, Tank's yawning. In the third panel, after that, they're sort of looking tired and kind of looking around like, what the fuck? Um, and then, you know, something happens towards the end of the page. Somebody's coming. Um and this was the, the next page was another one of those ones that was kind of hard to write because I wasn't really sure how to describe somebody walking up shadowed in silhouette like this, um, as in the first panel. Um, and we wanted to do it in such a way that it was not at all clear who it was. And then in the second panel, you might start to get a sense, but you, you know, honestly, most people's memories probably aren't aren't bringing to to their mind who this character was if they've seen them before and then in the last panel of this page we hear from uh murphy's pocket the i got your message and sort of the electronic bubble and this is where like a bunch of things start to come to a head the electronic bubble is 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 a hint and we've seen it before in the book um and people might not immediately remember where um and we've seen this character who we're about to find out who is before in the book um and when we turn the page we find out that it's ben's dad and he's talking on a walkie-talkie and you know we we know from the first issue that ben got a walkie-talkie from murphy as a birthday present and like the pieces are starting to come out and in another few panels, we will probably have all the information to understand what ha- what's happened in this book. Um, and sort of laying this groundwork and, and sort of executing on it to, at the end of the book, where we are now, was sort of – was kind of like a planning nightmare. Like, right, I wanted it to be a surprise, um, and I wanted it to be surprising, 
but I also wanted it to make sense. And like, that is a hard line to straddle. I'm not like bragging at all. Like I, I, it was a miserable experience trying to make this work and hopefully it did work. Um, but we get the reveal on the next page that Ben's dad is the killer. And uh, on those previous two pages, I really enjoyed those transitions and, uh, how subtly he brought that character forth. Mm Um, I, I just, so right before he's revealed, it's a, um, what if a four panel page, uh, only one panel has, has dialogue and, um, but that's all you need. And the only dialogue is, is the walkie talkie coming out of the, the being held over the walkie talkie. So it's, uh, it, it works really, really well. Well, yeah, and this this page is almost like a like a puzzle in its own weird way. It's four panels, and each one reveals more information and 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 moves the the, the narrative forward a beat. Because um, in the first panel, we've got the shadowed figure walking up. We know somebody's walking up. We know it's a he because of what Amanda said. Oh no, she said somebody's coming. So we don't even know it's a, a man or a woman, but you could probably get guess by the shape it's a man and then in the next panel we have sort of a back shot um and honestly here he kind of looks like tank and you know yeah totally yeah but you know somebody might make that sort of visual equivalency um but like slowly peeling back the layers first you see nothing then you see a silhouette then you see an unshadowed shape of a person um and then you see them reach into their pocket and then you get the electronic bubble and like the, the wheels in, in the reader's head should start spinning a little bit. If they remember what they've read before, where else have they seen an electric balloon before where, who, who had electric balloons when they were talking. Um, and then when you get the reveal of, of Ben's dad on the walkie talkie, like you can sort of start to put the pieces together. Okay. Ben's dad killed Ben. The walkie talkie is somehow involved here, you know, and then this is, this is, Again, this was just really about me trying to knock over the dominoes in like an orderly fashion, but like an interesting fashion, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So on the next page, we've got the reveal that that Ben's dad's the killer. Um, I don't know that we ever named him in a previous issue other than saying the first letter of his name right before Bulmer got killed, which was by design. But his first name is Arnold which was sort of like its own red herring. We wanted you to think that Bulmer was trying to say Avery. Um, but uh, so Arnold is here. He's got the walkie talkie and the kids sneak up on him. And this is sort of like a small callback to the second issue when Murphy was trying to sneak up on Bulmer unsuccessfully. Now they've successfully snuck up on somebody. I just like, for me, that was like a small unnecessary redemption that, you know, a 14 year old could sneak. <laughs> Cause I used to sneak all the time. Um, and then, like I was saying earlier, every page sort of needs to have this element at the end of it that propels you forward. And at the end of this page, we see that the kids are confronting Ben's killer, and then Murphy pulls a gun, which creates a whole new set of problems in that this isn't, uh, you know, we find out on the next page, this isn't something that was planned, that uh, uh, Amanda and Tank are totally not on board with this. And then they sort of raise some some ethical questions here. Um, the sort of page turn at the end of this is Amanda essentially asking Murphy, like, yeah, this guy killed Ben, but if you kill him, how are you better? Um, 
And then this is this really plays into the, the major theme that I want to talk about, uh, the, the two major themes actually. Do the things that happen to you as a child determine who you become and how much choice do we have in that? And right now, like we see in in Arnold, this person who had this horrible thing happen, his wife died, and it it totally twisted him into just this insane, not healthy killer of a person who killed his own son. Um, and then we've got Murphy, who's sort of this very strong but much younger foil to him. He's had somebody taken from him, and he's about to to or he's right now walking on that same line. Um, he's he's one trigger pull away from being Arnold and letting the thing that happened to him and the things that he's lost define who he's going to become. Um, so that's yeah, we're really getting to the, the core of what I want to talk about here. Um. And then, so on the next page, we've got Murphy holding Arnold at gunpoint. The other kids are super fucking not on board with this. And because we didn't forget him, Avery hears a ruckus outside his house. You know what he has to do when he hears a ruckus, right? He's got to come hop over that stone wall and figure shit out for people. So Avery hops that wall. And, you know, I, I'm buzzing now that I've had this man who's got to be in his late 60s hopping over this wall at a damn time. He is the fittest <laughs> He's older fit. person. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it just also makes me really want a stone wall now. I mean, I got a pretty decent size of land out in the country. I can mm. get a stone wall. That's pretty rad. That's yeah. kind of like a, it's like a status thing almost. Like, fuck, well, you, you know, know I got a stone wall. Where, where I, I, I grew up on the, the Jersey Shore, not, not where the Guidos live, but like the real Jersey Shore. But uh, I went out to high school in uh, western New Jersey, which is mostly farmlands. A lot of people don't know that, but where I went to high school in Flemington was mostly farmlands. And it was also very close to like where the Battle of Monmouth and a lot of the, the early Revolutionary War stuff was fought. And like, so there's a lot of colonial houses out there, and everyone had a stone wall back then. And I feel like we need to bring the stone wall back. You know, I'm, I'm just saying aesthetically. It, it and needs a revival. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah. So so now every all the players are on the board. We've got, we got Arnold revealed as the killer. we got Murphy holding him at gunpoint. we got Tank and Amanda super confused about what's going on and, and really, like, upset about what's happening. And then we got cranky-ass old Avery hopping his fence and, and – <laughs> This, this this sequence I'm gonna read it because it just it makes me laugh. So we got we got Avery walking out his door and he says the hell is going on out here. And then we have like a close up in the next panel of him and his goddamn kids every fucking time. So then we got in the third panel he's on on screen or on page rather. Uh, he's hopping over the fence and I and he says I told you to keep away from this end of the street. I even gave you a pass. We <laughs> whooped that Bulmer kid. But this is one time too many, and, and then he's sort of in the mix, and he sees what's going on. Um, and, like, there's a very conscious word choice here in this last panel on this page where, where Avery calls um, Murphy's son. Um, the, the, one of the sort of more subtle elements of the book is essentially everyone in this book is acting as some kind of parent to Murphy. Now, that's not necessarily something I, like, I intended, but... It's a sort of natural extension of Amanda's character and how she has to act. Um, Tank, and, you know, just by nature of his stature, is is Murphy's older brother. So he's 
got like some sense of authority over him, even if Murphy doesn't listen. His foster parents are his actual foster parents. Uh, Arnold is sort of like this sort of twisted anti version of a parent for him, like guiding him to become this awful version of himself. And then we've got Avery, who's sort of in this scene, this this voice of reason in his own weird way. And he's saying, you know, what the hell are you doing? Um, so we get on to the next page and this is where like we start to build the pressure, you know, <clears throat> Murphy's just telling everybody shut up. And he wants answers. He wants to know why Arnold killed Ben and he's backing him out onto the ice. And this, this is Sean doing his magic. These little, very flat colored cracks happening on the ice as he steps backwards. You know, again, they don't, like especially like the way he stretched them to be sort of on the plane of the ice here like they, they they're not on the art they're part of the art and sound effects are hard so like you know if i'm if i'm if i'm cool with them and i and i they don't bother me like that's usually a good sign and these are these are clutch um and we get to the end of this page and, and the page turn here is you know the answer to murphy's question why did you kill ben is because of you arnold blames his killing of Ben on Murphy. And and that opens up a whole new can of worms here, a, a new set of questions even. And and so, you know, on the next page, Murphy you know, sort of, he digs in a little further, what do you mean because of me? And then Arnold goes into this whole explanation about how he cared for Ben and took care of him and, and made him sure he got his education and that he was fed and they had a roof over his head. And, you know, like the things your parents always threatened yeah. you with when you were a kid, you know. Put a roof over your head and food in your mouth, you're going to respect me, blah, blah, blah. But, like, this is, like, a very serious take on that. And and it's the truth. Like, Arnold, for all his faults, he's obviously a child murderer. For 14 years, took care of this kid in, in like, sort of the essential checkbox kind of way like the, the way where social services wasn't gonna come and take him away um <laughs> but i mean like and 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 you know it's, that's not an emotional support but it doesn't count for nothing right like having a roof over your head and food in your mouth and clothes on your back really is a significant part of well-being um so and th- this is sort of where i i can identify <clears throat> with with arnold in this scene um and then we get this really great middle panel uh, toward the bottom of that page where, where it's a close-up on Arnold and, and, and he's, he says he's done all this for Ben and, and his reason for doing it is it's because what, it's what she would have wanted. It's because what it's what Ben's mom would have wanted him to do in this situation. And then we start to get context for why he did this. He he didn't want to be a father. We know that from the, the flashback scene in uh, issue two. and And we know that he was willing to, to, to give it a shot for her. And then tragedy struck and now there are complications giving childbirth and, and she died. And what was left was this newborn baby. And, and this man who never wanted to be a father was willing to, to do it for the woman he loved. Now she's not there. And now we see that 14 years of this is, has weighed on him a bit. Um, but he's 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 sort of soldiered on, and and he he you know he's not forgivable, but he's tragic in his own way, which I think are the the best villains are like they're relatable, and you can understand where they're coming from, and you can understand why they think they're right, even if they're wrong. 
Yeah, um, yeah. You see, you see his his drive and what uh, makes him tick. A little. You see his humanity and, and where he fails as a human. Yeah. Um. But but so far we we we've we don't really have the the motive like the thing that pushed him over the edge. Like we understand that he resents Ben. He took care of Ben because it's what his wife would have wanted and he's honoring her memory. Um, but, um, and then second to last panel on this page, the last one in that tier, um, Arnold essentially, I'll, I'll read it out. He says, but then I overheard your little heart to heart and I saw it in his face. You really convinced him that she could have cared for him after what he did. And essentially Arnold has always blamed Ben for his wife's death. And, yeah, like in like some kind of logical on paper sense, like there's truth to that. Like giving birth to Ben is what caused her death. And like he he's weirdly founded in that way. But the thing that pushed him over the edge was overhearing that walkie-talkie conversation in issue one where Murphy says to Ben that, you know, even though you never met your mother, she, there's no way she could have loved you. And And... I think, yeah, it's it's a very drastic situation. Like this isn't necessarily a realistic situation, but it's it's a hard one. And and hearing Murphy tell Ben that that his mother could have loved him when she's supposed to have loved Arnold, and and yeah, you know, that he took him took her away. Like it's just, I I can really, in a dark way, sympathize with Arnold here. Like I'm, what he did was absolutely wrong. He shouldn't have killed Ben. No, no one should have killed Ben, and he should have not done what he did. But like, I really, on like some kind of primal level, understand why he did it, in in, in a weird, dark way. Yeah, and also as a callback, you 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 know this guy has been living on memories. Um, earlier in the book, he's he's asleep in his chair, I think, looking at a picture of his wife. Yeah, because it was Ben's birthday, which was also the day that she died. So yeah, like, it's an especially like bittersweet, bitter day for him. He he hasn't like moved on. No, clearly, it's, it's been fourteen years, and like I didn't notice it the the first probably hundred times I read it. But if you look at that scene, like Ben's Ben's room is pretty well lit and 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 fairly decorated and, and has a lot of character. If you look around the rest of the house as as Ben's walking through it and finding his dad, it's very sparse. Like the only thing really adding any element to the, the scene is that picture. Um, and I mean, like that's nothing that I planned or wrote in the script. And maybe Nina's sort of a genius like that, and I think he probably is. But it really speaks volumes to like who this guy is and like. Yeah, when you look back at that scene on a second read after knowing like the way the story goes, I think there there are layers there that like yeah, really make it even more tragic, honestly. Yeah. Hang on a second, we're gonna pause. <laughs> so good, man. Right. What'd you think? You know, I think as I think with all of these, I think it's a thing that if you if you are interested in the creative process of a book or what goes through the creator's mind as they're, as they're writing things out, it, it's giving that insight. That. It, I think it's a thing. It is a thing. It is, <laughs> it a, it thing. is a thing. 
but it just it's it's a it's a cool backstory, right? I think I I think honestly, if we had a creator come on, and this is not Frank Grow, I I love his work. I think Diddinkins is great, but if we had a, a yeah. writer come on of a story we didn't really care for and walk us through this, it would then become interesting because we would then understand why the writer did what they did. I think that's that's the power behind talking yeah. to the creator of the show, of, of what they're doing. Yeah, I, I mean. Doing it something like this, like if you're interested in the creative process, this is a great way of understanding and getting into somebody's head of why they do what they do. And even books, like you said, that you might find uninteresting, all of a sudden become interesting because you go, oh, I see what they're thinking there. Right. And you get, I get why they went that direction when I'm reading that book. And I'm like, what are you doing? Why, why did they even say this? Exactly. 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 So. With that being said, and this is a horrible segue to this, but whatever, if you are a creator out there and you want to come on and talk about your book in this kind of a format and go page by page and give us a play by play and give us the insights of why you did what you did, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to have you come on the show and talk to one of us or Casey and uh, take us through your book. So you can do that by emailing spoilercountry at gmail.com and give us the and let us know. Or you can just hit us up on Twitter at spoiler underscore country and DM us there and we'll be happy to get something set up for you. There you guys go. That was way out of order, but that works. You know, I, I do what I do. <laughs> we're spoiling country. We're heard everywhere podcasts are heard. And we're on like a ton of social media. So reach out to us and be a part of what we've been talking about. We also have a voicemail. And then let Johnny tell you about our voicemail and our special October month edition the stuff that we're special October month edition. Our special October segment that we're trying to put together there you go so for the month of october we're trying to do some special stuff all around halloween horror we're big horror fans here we love horror movies and books and comics and thrillers and things that that make you just think and get creeped supernatural out detectives. Supernatural, exactly yes yes that's my favorite uh, supernatural gum shoes i think you would how you would say it yeah um, that was how i said it that's why i love sandman slim by richard cadry which is a great great series i'm on book five now by the way oh um, good but we were doing a thing where we were asking people what their favorite movie, favorite book, favorite comic book, favorite story, favorite thing, something that involves Halloween or horror or something scary. And this that- is something anybody – you can do it in the medium that you want to do it. If exactly. you want to write a blog or – I guess you'd call it a blog. It wouldn't be a blog. I guess it would be a short an artic- story. A, an article, a story. An whatever. article, whatever. We can post it through our website. We'd love to have that. If you right. want to give us a video, we got a YouTube channel. We'd love to have that. If you want to call the voicemail, give us a short story or talk about even about a time that just scared the shit out of you, we'd love to have that. Right. And you can call 707-656-2080. One more time, 707-656-2080. And tell us those stories you want to tell us. Tell us your favorite horror thing that's out there. If you want to write something to us or send us a video, or if you want to record an audio file of your own incident to us, again, use that email address from earlier, spoilercountry at gmail.com. And if whatever you're trying to send us, if it's too big, let us know. Email me, and I will send you a, a Dropbox link so you can upload it too. There you guys go. Don't forget, this is part one. Part two is coming soon. And on top of that, open your mind and read more. See ya. Ah. <laughs>